Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. On Thursday, a divided Supreme Court blocked the centerpiece of President Joe Biden's effort to get more people vaccinated against COVID-19, rejecting a rule that would have required 80 million workers to get shots or periodic tests. The outcome was no surprise after the oral arguments, where the liberal justices stressed the emergency the country is facing and the conservative justices stressed federal agency overreach. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan. It's an extraordinary use of emergency power occurring in an extraordinary circumstance, uh, a circumstance that this country has never faced before. As more and more mandates and more and more agencies come into place, it's a little hard to accept the idea that this is particularized to this thing, that it's a OSHA regulation, that it's a CMS regulation, that it's a federal contractor regulation. It seems to me that it's the, the government is trying to work across the waterfront, and it's just going agency by agency. The stakes were apparent, and some of the justices seemed a bit testy during the three and a half hours of arguments. Here are Justices Stephen Breyer and Samuel Alito. And so I repeat my question. To me, it's unbelievable, but I want to hear what you say. How can it be in the public interest, which is a requirement? How can it be a balance of harms in this case? Assuming the arguments aren't off the wall on the government side, and I'm believe me, they're not. Okay, that's what I want to hear the answer to. No, I'm not making that point. I tried to make it as clear as I could. I'm not making that point. I'm not making that point. I'm not making that point. There is a risk, right? Joining me is Robert Field, professor of law, health management, and policy at Drexel University. So, Robert, why did the six conservatives block OSHA's vaccine mandate? The conservative justices felt that OSHA had exceeded its authority, that it's empowered to control health and safety in the workplace, not general health and safety concerns for the entire population. And they thought that this was really a general population health concern, not a limited occupational health concern. And
and therefore OSHA didn't have the legal authority to impose the mandate. So the liberals dissented. What was their reasoning? That this very much affects the workplace and the fact that it also affects people outside of the workplace doesn't mean it affects workers any less. That COVID is a risk that's a particular problem if you're in an office or an assembly line or another workplace setting where you're close to other people. And so the fact that you could be infectious outside of the workplace doesn't make it any less of a workplace concern. In their dissent, were the liberals being a little bit snarky when they said that the majority was lacking any knowledge of how to safeguard workplaces and insulated from responsibility for any damage it causes? I would call that a little bit snarky or sarcastic, yes. Having listened to the arguments last Friday, I felt that they were particularly acrimonious. So it's not that surprising that the dissent would be that strident. Was this about the six conservatives being strict textualists, or was it about the six conservatives trying to rein in federal agency power? I think at its heart, it is suspicion of federal power. And this is a conflict that goes back to the origins of our republic, the conflict between states and centralized federal authority, and between government action and individual liberty and flexibility. And we have seen conservatives express skepticism over federal authority for decades. It reached ahead during the Reagan administration. And I think that antagonism to federal regulation has basically been part of our political structure since Reagan, certainly. It's been at the forefront. And the Biden administration knew what it was getting into, knew that this might be the result. I would assume so. They had to know that it would be challenged because it seems like everything they do gets challenged. And they had to know that with this Supreme Court, there'd be a difficult road to convince the conservatives that federal authorities should extend this far. My guess is that they felt that perhaps Kavanaugh and Barrett and Roberts as well would be receptive to their arguments and that would be enough to sway the court. But obviously it wasn't. The liberals managed to cobble together a majority to allow a second administration rule that would require shots for workers in nursing homes and other facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid payments to go forward. That was on a 5-4 to vote with the Chief Justice and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joining the liberals. Why was that vote different? It's a more limited mandate, for one. It just applies to healthcare facilities, not to 80% of the workforce. And I think the statutory authority is clearer. The federal government, since the start of Medicare and Medicaid, has been issuing standards for the facilities that receive its money. And those standards have become more complex over the years. So it's well established that Congress wants the facilities that receive federal money to meet some kind of threshold for keeping patients healthy. They certainly aren't funding Medicare and Medicaid so that facilities can be killing patients. They want the facilities to make patients as healthy as possible. So with that track record, with that precedent in terms of government action, there's a stronger statutory footing for allowing CMS to go forward. So were you surprised then that four conservatives still dissented, even in that case? Yeah, I was surprised. I thought Barrett at least would vote to support the health care mandate. 
and perhaps Gorsuch. I'm not surprised that Alito and Thomas didn't. But I thought given the clearer statutory authority to ensure the health and safety of people who work in government finance facilities and the patients who receive care there, coupled with the emergency nature of the COVID pandemic and the threat to hospitals, which are overflowing right now, I'm surprised that at least Barrett was not more sympathetic to the mandate. In his dissent, Justice Thomas said the vaccine mandate would be forcing healthcare workers to undergo a medical procedure they do not want and cannot undo. What the dissenters were saying, it's, it's ignorance of health. Um, the vaccine does not stay in your body. <laughs> what stays in your body is your own immune system. It's like saying that you exercised and developed stronger muscles, and that's now going to be with you for the rest of your life. That's not a foreign substance. That's your muscles. It's not a foreign substance. It's your immune system. There is a myth that a lot of people have bought into that a vaccine is a foreign substance that stays in your body. And so you're living with something that's unnatural, and it shows complete ignorance of how a vaccine works. Many vaccines are simply the virus you would have gotten otherwise, but neutralized. And the whole point is your body attacks it, your body removes it, and your body is stronger as a result. What concerns me, it's such contempt for science that they don't want to even bother to learn the science. These justices have clerks, and their job is to do research related to each of these cases. These are very bright people, and they could easily look up in a textbook, what a vaccine is and how it works. You know, I did want to ask you, cases that have come up on emergency basis, have they upheld yeah. the state state vaccine mandates for the most part? State and private, yeah, they have for the most part. And that's another issue here in terms of the objections, and this was brought up several times, that states have primary authority for the health and welfare of their population. So the conservatives, at least they said, they would not have a problem if a state issued a mandate. The question is whether the federal government has the power to override, to preempt state laws in this regard. And as you may know, the federal authority derives from the Commerce Clause, which says the federal government can regulate interstate commerce. And so the hook here is that the pandemic is affecting interstate commerce. And actually, the um, health worker mandate relies on a different congressional power. That's the spending power where Congress can say, we're offering you money, states or private entities, if you abide by the strings that we're attaching to it. And that is a, um, a clearer power under the Constitution. So Kagan said that um, in terms of national standards, several states have issued their own laws outlawing mandates. So this is not just a question of filling a void where states haven't acted. It's a question of preempting states that have taken an act, have taken actions that are probably destructive of public health. Any final thoughts on all this controversy over vaccines? Pandemics bring out the worst in people. People are scared. They don't know what to do. And even with our great scientific establishment, we can't give clear answers. And we've seen this back in history 
the Black Death of the 14th century uh, caused all sorts of crazy irrational behaviors. And throughout history, pandemics are scary, unknown threats. So in a sense, it shouldn't be surprising that it brings out a lot of bizarre attitudes and behaviors. Um, unfortunately, those get in the way of productively dealing with things. But um, pandemics do not provide the best environment for rational discourse. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Robert Field, a professor of law and health management and policy at Drexel University. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Texas's six-week abortion ban was back in court. The Fifth Circuit heard oral arguments last Friday over whether the Texas Supreme Court should now be asked to weigh in on the law, delaying the case even further. 
The arguments became rather heated, and Judge Edith Jones suggested that Judge Stephen Higginson was litigating on behalf of the abortion providers with his questions to the counsel for the Texas AG. Somehow that's not a holding, but the one you won is. Normally this court isn't litigating on behalf of one side or another. Is that a question to you or to me? And am I, am I litigating by, I think, do you appreciate my difficulty? Would you like to persuade me? I don't sense that you're intimidated. <laughs> of course, Your Honor. Yeah. So you don't need any assistance. I've asked you to question any premise I've made. So if the suggestion is I'm litigating, push back on any premise that I've had behind my question. Has uh, there been any unfair question to you, counsel? No, Your Honor. Joining me is Leah Littman, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Leah, this case went to the Supreme Court twice. Explain why it's back at the Fifth Circuit. So what ended up happening is the United States Supreme Court decided the issues in the case as the parties were then arguing them. And what the Texas state officials were arguing at the time was that the law clearly did not give any of them any enforcement authority, and therefore they could not be sued. What the United States Supreme Court said is, We, United States Supreme Court, think that at least these state licensing officials have the authority to discipline doctors and nurses who perform abortions in violation of SB 8. Because those licensing officials have that enforcement authority, they can be sued. But that conclusion rests on an interpretation of state law. And the United States Supreme Court is not the final arbiter over the meaning of state law. That job falls to the state courts. And so when the United States Supreme Court sent the case back down to the Fifth Circuit, the Texas officials filed a motion saying, we would like you, court, to basically ask the Texas Supreme Court about whether the United States Supreme Court's interpretation of the state law was correct. And you, Texas Supreme Court, need to tell us whether these licensing officials actually do have the authority to discipline doctors and nurses who perform abortions in violation of FDA. So how would it help the abortion providers if licensing boards were found to have the authority to discipline doctors about this? If the licensing officials do have the authority to discipline doctors who violate FDA, then the abortion providers can sue them. Under the court's sovereign immunity jurisprudence, individual plaintiffs are required to name as defendants in lawsuits some state officer who has some connection to the enforcement of a law. And if these state licensing officials can indeed discipline doctors who violate the law, then they have enforcement authority and they can be sued as defendants. This was a pretty contentious hearing. Some of the judges appeared to be sort of sparring with each other. What was the main contention? There were a few different contentions floating around in the argument. One was just the propriety of allowing the Texas officials to request certification to the Texas Supreme Court at this late stage in the case. The Texas officials had never before asked any court, including the United States Supreme Court, to certify a question to the Texas Supreme Court. And so one of the Court of Appeals judges, Judge Higginson, noted that there was never any case where a court had certified a question to a state Supreme Court after the state officials had lost 
before the United States Supreme Court or another appellate court. And so the fact that this looks like a late stage request and just kind of uh, ace in the back of the pocket in order to allow the states to continue to enforce this law even after their arguments had been rejected at the United States Supreme Court was one running concern and through line and point of disagreement between the judges in the oral argument. The second point of disagreement was a matter of timing. That is how urgent it was, was for the United States Court of Appeals to act on this case or to further delay it by certifying questions to the Texas Supreme Court. One of the Court of Appeals judges, Judge Edith Jones, asked whether they, the Court of Appeals, might just hold on to the case until the end of June because there was a chance that the Supreme Court might overrule Roe versus Wade, which would allow Texas to prohibit abortions more than six weeks after a person's last period. And so it seems like one of the judges on the Court of Appeals understands the time-sensitive nature of this case. The law is currently in effect and is nullifying people's ability to exercise what is currently a constitutional right, but the other judges seem to want to hold on to the case and further delay its resolution until they know whether the Supreme Court is going to reaffirm or overrule Roe. How unusual is it to decide to put off the case until the Supreme Court decides when the Supreme Court has sent the case back to the Fifth Circuit to decide? It's extremely unusual for the Court of Appeals to consider a motion for certification at this stage because at no previous point, either in the Court of Appeals or the United States Supreme Court, did the Texas officials press the courts to certify a question to the Texas Supreme Court. Um, So in that light, it feels like and it looks like, at least to one of the judges, as an unfair dilatory tactic. If the state officials actually had wanted the Texas Supreme Court to weigh in and thought that was necessary to the court's resolution of these cases, they could have and would have requested that earlier. Did the Supreme Court send it back to the Fifth Circuit specifically, and then the Fifth Circuit should have sent it back to the federal judge who initially decided the case? Yes, I think that that's correct. The reason why the United States Supreme Court sent this case back to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is that they, the United States Supreme Court, technically heard this case on what is called a petition for certiorari before judgment in the Court of Appeals. And when the Supreme Court does that, they will often then send the case back to the Court of Appeals. Um, But here, there really wasn't anything for the Court of Appeals to do, given that the United States Supreme Court had resolved the arguments in the case about whether the defendants were proper parties to be sued. And they both could and should have immediately sent the case back down to the district court to do what was next on the district court's list of things to do, which was consider the provider's request for an injunction against the law. Now, the district court judge seems inclined to find in favor of the abortion providers. I mean, could we consider that as a reason why the Fifth Circuit didn't send it back to the district court judge? I think absolutely. Um, The district judge in this case has issued one injunction against SBA. That was in the case that the United States brought against Texas. And it seemed earlier in this case, the case brought by the providers, to be on the cusp 
process of entering an injunction against SB 8. And we know that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit didn't think that there should be an injunction against this law. It stayed, that is, it put on hold um, the proceedings in the district court in the case involving the providers, so this case, and then it previously stayed the injunction that is put on hold the injunction that the district court had issued in the case brought by the United States. So it seems like the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is very aware that the district court is inclined to enjoin this law and that they don't think it should be enjoined. I don't understand why the Supreme Court took this route instead of just, do they just want to avoid deciding the ultimate question? There's no way of knowing that, but it just seems like this is, this is uh, ridiculous to be sending it back to the Fifth Circuit. So based on how the Supreme Court wrote the opinion in this case, um, it did not seem like they thought there was any need for expediency to get this law off the books and to stop it from being enforced. Even though they heard the case on an expedited schedule, um, they took their time deciding the case, and then they did not issue a stay against the law while they were considering it. Um, and so it doesn't seem like a majority of the court believes that it is an urgent matter to put this law on hold and allow abortions to resume in Texas. And again, the way that Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion for the court made clear that their conclusion that the providers could sue the state licensing officials was merely because of their interpretation, the Supreme Court's interpretation of how this state law was written. And so they invited and opened up the door um, for this challenge that the Supreme Court had not interpreted the state law correctly. Um, the dissenting judges, uh, the Chief Justice, together with the Democratic appointees, made clear that basically no matter how the state wrote this law, um, the providers could at a minimum sue the state court clerk and the state attorney general. Um, but because the majority dismissed that possibility, they created this universe in which the provider's lawsuit rose or fell, depending on the proper interpretation of the state law and who it gave enforcement authority to. So the judges, if the Supreme Court upholds Mississippi's abortion law, how does that affect the Texas abortion law? It will certainly make it more likely that the Texas abortion law could be upheld if a court were to reach the merits of the lawsuit. Technically, the issues that the courts are deciding right now are not whether the law is unconstitutional, but instead whether the law can be challenged in federal court. Um, now, if the Supreme Court upholds the Mississippi statute and either overrules formally Roe versus Wade or dramatically modifies it, then that would create the possibility that were a federal court to reach the merits of whether Texas SBA is constitutional, they could possibly uphold it. One of the judges said, normally this court isn't litigating on behalf of one side or the other. And I know I've said, isn't this unusual twice already during this interview, but that also seems really odd for a judge to say. There were definitely several oddities about the oral argument. It's clear that there are strong feelings on both sides about the legal arguments and also how the courts are handling this case. 
Um, Judge Higginson, in the dissenting opinion, when the U.S. Court of Appeals opted to schedule oral argument on this motion to certify, invited the United States to intervene in the lawsuit and participate as an amicus because he felt that the courts and the states were slow walking this challenge um, and in the process nullifying people's ability to exercise their constitutional rights. Um, on the other hand, you have the two Republican-appointed judges on the courts of appeals kind of making jokes at the oral argument, suggesting the Supreme Court got this case wrong. Um, and so there are definitely strongly held views on both sides, which made for a quite um, testy oral argument. It seems like a complete and total uphill battle for the abortion providers. Just it seems to indicate how smart it was for the right to life people in Texas to to frame the law in this way. I think yes and no. These arguments only had a chance of succeeding given the changed composition of the Supreme Court as well as the very, very conservative U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. The two judges on this panel include one who has written in opinions criticizing Roe versus Wade and urging the Supreme Court to overrule it. So this was a very favorable panel, and I don't think, honestly, much depended on the fact that the law was crafted this particular way. Rather, it depends on the composition of the Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court and the fact that they are very hostile to the rights to an abortion. What about the Texas Supreme Court? The Texas Supreme Court, I'm not as familiar with them, um, but I don't think anyone thinks of them as a left-leaning court. Um, I don't know, however, what they might say were the issue to be certified to them, as I expect it will be. Thanks, Leah. That's Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.